Welcome back to Trill Mix 2016. I'm Scripps politics reporter Miranda Green, and today I'm joined in studio by my co-host Aswin Subsang. Hi, Swin. How are you feeling this morning? Uh, caffeinated. Well, that's good. It was a long night last night. Uh, Justin Green, our third wheel, is currently on a plane heading to Chicago, uh, and so he won't be able to join us this show, but... Instead, we have an extra guest joining us who's going to fill in for the first segment of the show who's calling in from Wisconsin. Uh, Patrick Caldwell is a reporter at Mother Jones, and he has spent the last week in Wisconsin reporting on the primary race there, and he's actually calling in from that state now. Hey, Pat, how's it going? Good. Thanks for letting me join the fun this morning. Last night, Wisconsin went to Bernie Sanders on the Democrat side and to Ted Cruz on the Republican side. So how has Wisconsin felt different to you than the other states that you've been at so far this primary season? Well, it's definitely been remarkable that Trump has pretty little following here. Um, I've went to some of his events over the past week, and he's kind of struggled to fill spaces. One, you know, Trump normally has long lines out of his uh, events, and people are clamoring to get in, and his pre-election night uh, rally in Milwaukee half filled the space. There was a circus act. There was a literal circus next door, which seemed just like a little too fitting. Wait, wait, a literal circus act. The the shrine shrine circus was at the arena right next door. It was funny in Milwaukee. Trump's final rally and Bernie Sanders' final rally were scheduled at the same time, and they shared a parking lot with the shrine circus. And so there were Donald Trump fans, Bernie Sanders fans, and young kids going to see elephants or things like that. So Donald Trump was an act in addition to the circus right across the street that people could go see, essentially. So this is like a Bob Dylan song. Pretty much. Or like, okay, okay, go on. (laughs) So so you said, but you felt like the lines weren't as long. Do you think that there are more people going to the circus than were coming out to see Trump? I think the circus was pretty filled when Trump was pretty empty. So you obviously talked to a lot of people about, you know, their feelings on the candidates. Why do you think that, you know, Cruz was able to come out with such a strong victory in the state last night? Well, Cruz did a pretty good job of kind of rallying the Wisconsin establishment group sort uh, around his side. And the Wisconsin establishment... Republicanism is not as scary a word uh, in Wisconsin as it has been in some of the other states where Trump has done well. You have to keep in mind that Wisconsin is a place where the Republican Party has really bunkered down to wage fights over the past five years, ever since Scott Walker was first elected governor um, in the 2010 election. They've had continual fights over recall elections and re-elections and passing legislation. So the Tea Party base and the party bigwigs in the state have really coalesced together around all those various elections. So Trump's denunciations of, you know, the cronyism or the uh, party bigwigs deciding things is actually less scary here than it is. And so Cruz did a really good job of winning the southeastern part of the state, uh, which is the very heavily Republican areas around Milwaukee, uh, primarily. Uh, and it's sort of more of a bus- suburban, business-friendly uh Republican class than you've seen in some of these other states. And Trump's kind of crazy rhetoric and kind of flailing around over the past week really hurt him out here. And the governor, Scott Walker's decision to endorse Cruz really kind of cemented that support. A lot of pundits and some reporters have been trying to spin this for the past week that, oh, Donald Trump's most disastrous week Um, maybe in his entire campaign uh, when they were talking about his like abortion punishment comments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Do you think that actually had an impact on the Wisconsin race or is that just like 
sort of foolish minute-by-minute spin, given that a lot of people in Wisconsin seem to have made up their minds in this Republican primary quite some time ago before Donald Trump's, like, dumpster fire of a week. I mean, I think that is sort of the general noise of political co- weekly political coverage that tends to overinflate things a little bit. Uh, if you notice the polls, actually, Donald Trump stayed pretty consistent since months ago in Wisconsin. He was getting around mid-30s percent, and that's what he got... Uh, last night. The difference is there were more candidates in the race earlier. I talked to a pollster out here and he made a good point that what Ted Cruz actually did was he just gathered all of the people who had been supporting those other candidates and very few of those voters ended up going to Trump. So yeah, maybe some of the last week's you know craziness around Trump did hurt him and that no Ben Carson supporters ended up going to his side. But it seemed more likely that it's just there's a segment of the Republican base that likes Trump. And there's a segment that doesn't, and Cruz won that second segment pretty strongly here. And so whether he'll be able to do that in the future races in New York and Pennsylvania and things like that is going to be telling. So where were you last night, Pat, when the results came in? I was hanging out with Bernie Sanders fans at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. They were quite excited, as you would imagine. Yeah, paint paint the scene for us. What was it like to be there among the students, and what were their reactions when they found out that he won? More importantly, what music was playing? <laughs> uh, the music probably would not have satisfied you when it was an impromptu sing-along of This Land is Your Land, uh, fulfilling all of the stereotypes of Bernie Sanders fans. No. Uh, it was kind of in- it was interesting. None of the, all the candidates actually, except for Ted Cruz, all of the candidates left the state uh, before Tuesday. Uh, Hillary Clinton had already moved on to New York over the weekend. Uh, Bernie Sanders held his last rally here Monday night in Milwaukee and then flew off to Wyoming where he gave his actually gave his Wisconsin victory speech in a different state. Uh, and Donald Trump was somewhere crying in his hotel room. I'm not sure what he was up to. He was you not never giving speeches last night. <laughs> but uh, here in Ma- I mean, Madison is a exceedingly liberal town. Uh, it's the home of the major university in the state. It's a state capital and the kind of a burgeoning tech scene here. Um, so probably is not too surprising that Bernie Sanders won this part of the state really strongly. I mean, this was actually where he laid down his marker far in advance. Uh, back last summer when he was sort of doing tours of cities and pundits thought that was foolish and he was just kind of running a stunt campaign, he came to Madison and drew a 10,000-person crowd. Uh, and I think that sort of long investment actually ended up paying off here. What was the uh, difference you sensed when talking to diehard Bernie fans or diehard Trump fans in Wisconsin. Like the the conventional wisdom right now, and well, not just the conventional wisdom, but what's coming out of the polling is there are a lot of pro-Trump voters in Wisconsin and elsewhere basically saying there's a very good chance they will not support the Republican nominee if it is not Donald Trump. Did you get the same sense from the like diehard Bernie fans you were talking to in Wisconsin that if it is that sort of a hashtag never Hillary vibe? There are some of those people, certainly, although not nearly as many as I saw on the Republican side. Most Bernie fans, they're not into Hillary Clinton, but they are resigned to supporting her if she wins. Um, I think the media has, in some ways, really overplayed the Bernie versus Hillary, you know, dissenters. Obviously, there are some people, and you can pick, you can go to a Bernie rally, and you can find some people who will say terrible things about Hillary Clinton. But your average Bernie supporter is really enthusiastic about Bernie, and will be okay with Hillary, and maybe will be feel a little sad after a little while. But most of them will 
be resigned to it and vote because they're terrified of Donald Trump. I mean, you go to political rallies, especially liberal ones right now, and Hillary or Bernie rallies, and they all mainly want to talk about how scared they are of Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. They, you know, as a second afterthought, they're, they'll mention that Ted Cruz is sort of scary too, but let's talk about Trump. Um, so I don't think that's going to be a major problem. Although it is interesting to notice that both the Hillary campaign and the Bernie campaign have, I think this has generally been one of the most friendly presidential primaries you could possibly have. Like, sure, they argue back and forth a little bit, but they're very kind and respectful to each other. They try to compliment each other. The issues are not that big of a difference. But over the past week out here, I have noticed that they're starting to get a little bit more contentious. Um, Sanders has gotten a lot more direct um, and pointed in his criticisms of Hillary and kind of jokes about it a little bit more than he used to and calls her out on things like fossil fuel donations and demands apologies or is much more pointed in his critiques of her not releasing her Wall Street speeches. So while I do think the supporters are generally getting along pretty well right now, if the candidates keep amping up their rhetoric over the next two weeks before New York, then there might, might start to be a few more hard feelings. How much do you think Bernie Sanders amped up rhetoric um, and even Hillary Clinton's kind of hostileness? I mean, we saw that we all saw that clip of her uh, talking to the Greenpeace woman who kind of approached her at her rally. Uh, you know, do you think this has to do with the fact that Bernie Sanders campaign kind of seems like it might be winding down? I mean, have you gotten the sense at all that it seems like this is a make it or break it moment for that campaign? Yeah, certainly. I mean, amongst the Bernie kind of rhetoric and staff and supporters, there is sort of this sense that they are beleaguered and they're getting pressed on all sides and that things are in dire straits. So I think there is an amping up of it. At the same time, though, actually, Bernie has been selling it as this is their hopeful moment. Uh, he brags quite a bit um, out here about how his poll numbers are at their best ever, which, you know, he bragged that there was one poll that showed him up 1% nationally, which is kind of a strange thing to brag about this late in the campaign. But He'll take anything he can get. And he bragged a lot about how he's run up a recent string of victories. So it's a strange mixture of feeling bunkered down, like you need to fight for every last stand, but at the same time hopeful that the momentum's on their side. So you think that we're going to be seeing a much different outcome as in the weeks ahead as the races kind of shift towards the East Coast for candidates than we saw last night with uh, Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz kind of taking home the victories? I think so. I mean, this is the problem with presidential politics in some ways, is that it's too easy to focus on a lone election when it stands alone. You know, a few weeks ago, Minnesota voted. Minnesota is a very similar state to Wisconsin. Uh, as a Minnesotan, it pains me to say that, since we have a rivalry, but actually, <laughs> their states look pretty similar and uh, have similar characters. Marco Rubio and Bernie Sanders won Minnesota a few weeks ago. That wasn't you know, framed as a race-changing uh, outcome because they were, there were other states voting at the same time. And the fact that Wisconsin voted standing alone for, you know, there was, was an election last week and there's a good gap time before New York still is going to make it seem like this election has more impact than it does. But at the same time, elections, at this, especially this late in the cycle, are a lot about math. And sure, Bernie Sanders won by about 13% last night, but that only means he closed his delegate gap by around 10 delegates or so. Um, so I think reading too much into it is tempting but dangerous. Yeah, I, I have been saying that um, for as great as last night was for Ted Cruz, um, it's going to be pretty funny for him when Donald Trump ends up cleaning up in Pennsylvania and New York very soon. Like this, like he, of course, Ted Cruz is right now talking as if he's the presumptive nominee. 
that's what he's supposed to do at his rally to make everybody feel good. That's his spin, whatever, who cares? But no, I, I think everybody is pretty much resigned to the fact that this is going all the way to the convention in Cleveland in the summer. Yeah, the one thing that I guess favors the anti-Trump people coming out of Wisconsin is the fact that Ted Cruz managed to win over all the supporters of the dropped out candidates, which does bode well for him in future races. But at the same time, this was a state that was primed to go for a never Trump candidate. And so the fact that it did is not super surprising. The question is whether that can change the polling in the future races. And maybe it can if the media talks about it enough, but it's unlikely to do that on its own. But at the same time, for the Republicans who are scared of Donald Trump being their nominee, any victory at this point is pretty important. Since Donald Trump, he's on a path right now to winning enough delegates to win a first ballot convention, but it's a very narrow path. So anytime that gets thrown off course just a little bit, it makes a difference. And, you know, they're just hoping they can deny him by, you know, a few delegates and have it get tossed to a contested convention because there's not much never Trump hope besides that at this point. Thank you so much for joining us, Pat. It was great to speak to you all the way from the big cheese state of Wisconsin. I hope you bring us back some cheese curds. Uh, I will be in New York uh, in the next two weeks covering the campaign. Will I see you there? Uh, Yeah, I think I'll probably be up in New York as long as I can pull myself away from all the cheese curds I've been eating out here. All right. Well, I will see you then. And uh, thanks again. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for having me on. It's been real. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to New York Island. So, Swin, how does it feel to just be you and me for the show? It feels great. I mean, I thought it was really cruel when you described him at the top of the show as third wheel Justin Green, but... No, I, I think that's that's going to be my nickname from from now on. I mean, you only really Mr. need one green, right? Exactly. No, you're you're kind of oversaturating the market right now. Yeah. I mean, now it's now it's more. We, we only we only have one soup thing. So what do we need? <laughs> why do we need two greens. So Swin, uh, since it's just you and me one on one, I heard that you were at the Library of Congress recently doing some research. Some really dignified highbrow stuff. You had, I was. Digging. You had to go in and get the pass. This is a big deal to be able to go and sit in this room. And what were you doing there, looking at a first editions of um, Jane Austen? Uh, this is award-winning stuff, what I was doing last week. I was digging through the microfilm of old issues of the supermarket tabloid, The National Enquirer. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, like a bunch of their issues from the 80s and 90s you can't find online. So I looked for the closest place in Washington, D.C. that would have them, and it happened to be the Library of Congress. Now, to back it up a little, this is why I was there. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, The National Enquirer came out with a supposed bombshell blockbuster scoop on uh, Ted Cruz's alleged five mistresses. This sort of drove the national political news cycle for at least a few days. When asked about the story, Donald Trump basically said, oh, I don't know if this Ted Cruz affairs story or sex scandal is true or not, but, you know, the National Enquirer does have a very good track record of being right. The National Enquirer did a story. It was their story. It wasn't my story. It was about Ted Cruz. I have no idea whether it was right or not. They actually have a very good record of being right. But I have absolutely no idea. Frankly, I said, I hope it's not right. And this was something that stemmed that came from kind of the back and forth feud between Trump and Cruz that came from the ad that had Trump's wife, Melania, on the front of it saying, would you want this to be your first lady? That, that that's super pack ad, sure. Then switched and into a tweet from Donald Trump against Heidi Cruz. And basically then s- calling Heidi Cruz ugly, yeah. So th- this was sort of the culmination. Um, 
if not directly, at least indirectly, of this sort of both sexist and sex-related back and forth, or at least sex appeal-related, I guess. Ew, because we're talking about Ted Cruz. And the thing to know about uh, Donald Trump and the National Enquirer, a lot of people uh, suspected that Donald Trump or one of his allies or somebody in his campaign basically fed this story to the Enquirer because Donald Trump and the Enquirer's publisher, current publisher, David Pecker, who took the helm in 1999, he and Donald Trump have been close friends for a long time. Uh, Donald Trump has said and tweeted nice things about him, for instance, saying that he should take over as CEO of Time magazine. And the National Enquirer has uh, showered Trump, especially during this presidential campaign, with incredibly positive coverage and uh, just gone to town on his political enemies, including Ted Cruz, Jeb Bush, Ben Carson, Carly Fiorina, Marco Rubio, et cetera, et cetera. So it it wasn't shocking to you at all when they came out with this, this piece that essentially said that they knew something about Ted Cruz's uh, Right. Sources say that this could take down Ted Cruz and that he's a total slut, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. So how did you go Uh, from this headline coming out to uh, marching all the way up to Capitol Hill and doing this deep dive research into microfilms? I don't even remember what those look like. Because if uh, Trump has this very close relationship with the National Enquirer now, or at least for the past few years, uh, the Enquirer, along with uh, Breitbart.com, are... Donald Trump's and the Trump campaign's closest political allies in media right now. So if he is going to say the Inquirer has, and I quote, a very good track record of getting things right, then surely that should include the stuff they've written on him, perhaps even before they became such close political allies. The National Inquirer in the 90s had a very special appetite for writing stories on Donald Trump and his quote-unquote, mistress or Donald Trump cheating scandals, which included blaring headlines such as Trump's mistress cheats on him with Tom Cruise or like incredible claims like that. So or Trump's in- second wife, Marla Maples, cheated on Trump with his bodyguard on the beach, I think is one of the ones I saw. Yes, yes. That, that was one of them that I found at the Library of Congress, except unlike the other stories, this one is actually a little bit more careful. They just strongly imply that with a 4 a.m. romp on the beach that Trump's bodyguard and his second wife, Marla Maples, uh, were having an affair, while especially while Donald Trump was out of town. They, they they strongly imply this, but never actually said. You know, they're they're careful with those libel laws so, sometimes. So to me, there's there's nothing shocking about the fact that the National Enquirer is going to amp up salacious material to be able to sell magazines. But Donald Trump, at least, you know, the candidate that we see today seems like someone who never forgets being called a loser, never forgets someone who's done him wrong. So it's interesting to see that, you know, the National Enquirer obviously had it out to get him at some point in the 90s, and now it's kind of turned a 180. Right. They even ran with a cover story while he was going through his first divorce about uh, how we have exclusive photos that could cost Trump millions or billions regarding his alleged affair with Marla Maples. So... It's really interesting that in just a couple of decades, they go from a supermarket tabloid that does not care if Donald Trump loses millions, if not billions of dollars, and at least from the appearance of the cover stories and the text, seems to delight in Donald Trump being cuckolded or cheated on or two-timed. And then flash forward two decades later, and suddenly they're a publication that more than anything wants to see him become president. Uh, Aside from the exclusive interviews they've done with him, the puff pieces, the fact that Donald Trump has written for the National Enquirer, they have given Donald Trump their coveted 2016 presidential endorsement. So do you think this is just an issue of forgiving and forgetting, or do you think it's a little bit of a backroom 
kind of pact that's going on over here? Well, you know, uh, as I said, uh, all these stories I'm talking about in the Inquirer appeared before David Pecker really did take the helm in 1999. So since then, or at some point since then, the uh, really negative sex scandal-y coverage of Donald Trump and his personal relationships in that sense came to a halt. How do you think that those articles are going to change as we get into New York, you know, as we start seeing Donald Trump on the East Coast? I'm not sure if they'll change. Who knows how many more uh, Donald Trump cover stories or Trump-related cover stories there'll be between now and November. But I think that it won't change in the sense that you will not be seeing any hit pieces or really negative stories about Donald Trump in the pages of the Inquirer, which, according to um, anonymous sources who spoke to uh, the New York Daily News a few months ago, there are staffers there who are absolutely frustrated over this because Donald Trump, as uh, you and I being reporters know, is such fertile ground, especially if you're a tabloid, to write about his personal life and the more scandalous aspects of his past and present. There's a lot of material There's there. so much material there, and they're pissed off that uh, basically, the directive has come up from up on high that we are not going to touch Donald Trump. We are not interested in digging dirt on him, and we're essentially protecting him. Sounds to me like this David Pecker guy might try to be uh, trying to get his uh, shoe in the door to be the national press secretary if Donald Trump ends up winning. I highly, well, I doubt that, but wouldn't that be great? Like director of communications David Pecker. Stranger things have happened already in this election, so you know we'll see. All right. Well, uh, thanks for that investigative reporting, Swin. Uh, you know, keep up the good work. And uh, I can only hope that I could delve into National Enquirer old microfilms like you have. Justin will be back with us next week. Uh, the, three of, the three of us will all be together in studio. And uh, until then, have a great week. Fun as always, Miranda. We'll see all you guys on the next episode next week. Have a good one. Tromix 2016 is a production of Scripps News out of our Washington, D.C. Bureau. The show is produced by Eric Krupke. You can follow us at Twitter at Trailmix2016. We post a lot of extra little tidbits and things we talk about on the show there. You can also follow me at my Twitter handle, Miranda C. Green. And make sure to rate us on iTunes. Any extra stars or any extra little ratings go a long way. Thanks for listening.